to praise Jesus and thank him for that amazing power that we have in the blood. If you're with us, you can be at home clapping your hands, stomping your feet, and having a good old country time. Just remember to thank the pastor because that is his favorite. Would you free from your burden of sin? Here in the 
same old voice tell the same old lies and if you're trying to fill the same old holes inside well there's a better life there's a better life and if you've got pain
was blind, but now I see. Tis grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious
We thank you, God, for that amazing grace. We are so grateful, Father, because even when we did not deserve it, you sent your one and only Son to die for us. God, it's been a hard <laughs> 11 months, hard to believe now, but Father, for all those who have fears, may they be relieved. For those who feel like they're blind, wandering in a darkness, can you show them the light? For those that need the healing touch this day who are watching out there today that maybe they got the, the positive results and maybe they don't understand what that means and they don't know how they feel. For those that are even in pain this day, God, we ask the great physician to step in. May you reach into those homes, to those hospitals, to wherever they are, Father, and give them strength and power from the Holy Spirit. For all those that are in here this day, God, for those who, who know who you are, may the Holy Spirit fall down and reassure, give confidence, give strength, give mercy, give power. May we feel your love stronger than ever for that amazing grace that you gave us. May you speak boldly through our pastor this morning that his words would be your words and that we would take those words and live them out in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. 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 Hey, well, good morning. Sorry about all of those technical difficulties that we had at the beginning, but I'm really glad that you guys are with us and that we get to dive in. Now, before we dive into the scripture today, a couple of housekeeping items I want to let you know about. First off, as I got to mention last week, Lighthouse community is slowly crawling into the 21st century, and as most of us are beginning to interact mostly with the world through our phones more often than with our computers, we just wanted to let you know that we've been working on an app, so all of the different functionality that you can get through our website, whether that be watching the services live um, or perhaps uh, being able to find out what's coming up at the church, if we have a men's retreat or a women's retreat, being able to sign up and even pay for that, being able to give that way, and other things like that, including I, whenever I have a blog post that I put out, that gets put up there as well. So all of that kind of functionality is now available on our new app. Let me go ahead and show you how you can download it. All you need to do is text LCCCM, there's three C's in that, LCCCM app, to 77977. Okay, so that's Lighthouse Coastal Community Costa Mesa app to 77977. Uh, the other way you can search for it is if you just go into your phone's uh, app store, you just look up Lighthouse Coastal Community Costa Mesa. There's a lot of Lighthouse churches apparently out there because lots of people trying to be a beacon of hope uh, to our communities. And so that's a wonderful thing, but that's how you can find us. The second thing I want to let you know about is I know that many of you are aware that on Friday our Supreme Court made an announcement or, or made a ruling that the parameters that have been placed on us by our governor cannot hinder us from gathering in the building, in the box. Now, there are still some things that are working through that in terms of being able to sing and things like that indoors, but... We have permission from our Supreme Court to gather. Now, I want to mention a couple of things. First off, this building has never been closed, right? We have never locked the doors, and so there have been people that have been kind of sneaking in and stuff and just kind of being in the building, and we are going to continue to keep those doors unlocked. We are going to start slowly gathering in here for those of you who feel safe, 
for those of you who are willing to follow those protocols that are in place, meaning we're going to be taking temperatures when you come in, we're going to be staying six feet apart, we are going to have face masks that we're going to be wearing in and out and whenever you're not sitting in your seat, uh, those things are going to remain in place. That said, there are some of you right now, as we hit, are watching the numbers and you're going, I'm not comfortable with that, we're going to continue to live stream and I would encourage you to just prayerfully ask, what do I feel most confident and comfortable with? We are trying to be wise about this, and as things continue to shake out, we will continue to keep you abreast of it, but we just wanted to let you know that that's the posture that we're taking as we move forward. So with that, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 2. We're actually going to be spending the majority of our time today in John chapter 3, but last week there were a couple of verses in John 2 that I did not get to, and I want to address those. <clears throat> One of the things that... I've always found ironic about the Gospels was that the, the very Messiah that the people of Israel had been waiting centuries to come, when he finally showed up, it was the people of God who basically demanded that he be crucified. And I've always found that ironic, and I've always gone like, why on earth would you kill your Messiah? But it's instances like we looked at last week. When Jesus walks into Temple Mount and he sees that the court of the Gentiles had been turned into a marketplace and in his anger, he begins to clear it out. It's moments like that that help me to understand why they would make that leap from shouting, Hosanna, save us on, on Palm Sunday to crucify him on Good Friday. Because ultimately, they were anticipating that Jesus would come as a conquering king and throw off the heavy hand of Rome. They expected that Jesus would come and clean out Herod's palace, but instead he goes into the temple and he begins to clean out the temple. Rather than, and I find this in my own self, and I think that we probably see this in ourselves as well. We want a savior that focuses his energy on purifying the world because the world is full of impurities. Focus your energy there, and more often than not, when Jesus comes in and begins to purify, he starts here in our own hearts, and that's uncomfortable. And we're going to be grappling with that over the next several weeks, this idea of a Savior who loves us enough not to just focus out there on the sins out there, but in here, in the sin in our own heart. And it's instances like we looked at last week that remind me of why the people of God would actually clamor for his crucifixion. Because they didn't want to be called out. They didn't want to be cleansed. They wanted a king who would do their bidding. But at the very end of chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, we read a couple of verses, and I skip them. Because here's what I find ends up happening. We, our, our Bibles, as we have them in English, have these chapters and they have these verses in them, which are really, really helpful. Because they help me be able to say as a pastor, hey, turn with me to John chapter 2, verse 23. Otherwise, I'd be like, hey, um, find the place in John. It's like the 42nd paragraph. Go ahead and turn there with me. And it's, we're going to start with the 32nd word. That would take a lot longer. So having the chapters and verses are very, very helpful. And those were added several hundred years after 
the Bible was codified together as we have it, as after all of these letters and, and gospels that had been kind of circulated throughout the church were gathered together and put into the format that we have, about 400 years later, these chapters and verses were added on, and they are helpful to us. But from time to time, they can be an impediment, because what they do is they introduce to this gospel unnatural breaks at times, and sometimes they can actually hinder us from understanding the flow of a thought. And what we find as we transition from chapter 2 to chapter 3 is that the chapter break actually does just that. I'm going to show you how this morning. In verse 23 we read, Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, which is where that whole cleansing of the temple that we looked at last week took place, many people saw the signs he was performing, and they believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. I'm going to stop there. Because in our English Bibles, in our English translations, we don't see the flow from chapter 2 to chapter 3 as clearly as somebody who's reading this in the original Greek would see it. So let me go ahead and throw the same couple of verses, the last verse of chapter, 20, uh, of chapter 2 and the first verse of chapter 3 up on the screen. Can we do that? <clears throat> okay, let's read it again. He did not need any testimony about man, and the word in Greek for man is anthropos, for he knew what was in a man. The word there is anthropo. Now we go to chapter 3. Now there was a man, and again we have the word anthropos, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Can you see how, if you're reading this in Greek, you very clearly see that those last couple of verses in chapter 2 lead right into the interaction that Jesus is about to have with this guy Nicodemus. Come on back to me. So what we have is Jesus recognizing that there were people who were attracted to the teaching that he was doing there in the temple. There were people who were kind of astounded that he would have the audacity to cleanse the temple like he did. There were people that had heard that he had changed water into wine at a wedding feast. There were people who heard him teaching, and they were attracted to him, and yet Jesus knew what was in their heart. He knew that those people who were beginning to be attracted to him like a moth to a light were fickle, that their faith was very, very weak, and that they could just as easily turn and walk away as we will see that many of those people do when we get to John chapter 6. And so Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to them. And now at the very beginning of chapter 3, we're introduced to a guy named Nicodemus who represents that group of people the fact that, he, that, that John uses that term anthropos several times indicates that Nicodemus is coming as a representative of this group. And not only that, he's coming as a representative of the Pharisees, the, the Jewish teachers, and as a representative of the Sanhedrin, that group of leaders that were in charge of caring for the Temple Mount. And no doubt Nicodemus had seen the work that Jesus had done, had experienced that cleansing of the temple, or at least had heard about it. He'd perhaps heard or seen Jesus do some other things that were noteworthy. Maybe he'd heard him teach a couple of times. And there was something in Nicodemus that was attracted to Jesus. 
And yet, Nicodemus is also concerned of people's opinion about him. He's concerned that if he is seen moving to Jesus and bringing his disciples along with him, he might be judged. He might be unintentionally kind of identified as a follower of Jesus, and that's the last thing he wants right now. He's not really sure if he wants to be identified with Jesus. And so instead of coming during the day and bringing the entourage of his disciples, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, quietly, in the shadows. So there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he comes to Jesus at night, and he comes quietly. But there's an element of Nicodemus still identifying as a member of the Sanhedrin. And potentially, he even came, maybe there was some encouragement from some other members of the Sanhedrin to go like, hey, go, go check out this guy. Go find out what he's about. Because when Nicodemus first begins to talk to Jesus... He doesn't use the pronoun I like I want to know or I think this about you. He uses the pronoun we, meaning he's identifying himself with the group of religious leaders. And so we read in verse 2, he came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. And what Nicodemus is doing is he's buttering Jesus up a little bit, saying, hey, you, you, you've obviously been doing some major signs. You're obviously coming from God. And on a silver platter, he is inviting uh, Jesus to begin talking about these signs, to begin talking about the significance of them, to begin talking about what he's just done on Temple Mount. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. Jesus doesn't lean into that conversation. Instead, he throws Nicodemus a curveball when he responds in verse 3. Very truly, I tell you, and that word very truly that our English translations translate are the word amen twice. Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I tell you. And, and by the way, we're going to see that a lot as we go through John's gospel. Very truly is always amen, amen. Truly, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. No one can see and understand what God is doing in this sphere where God's sovereign will is carried out. That's what the kingdom of God is. To use a term that I have, or a definition that I go back to again and again, and I am stealing this straight from a guy named Dallas Willard. He said, a kingdom is wherever the sovereign ruler's will is done. So the kingdom of God is wherever God's sovereign will is carried out. And Jesus said, nobody can see the kingdom of God. Nobody can understand what God is up to unless they are born again. That word born again is one that if you've grown up in the church, I'm sure you've heard before. I certainly have. And yet, I don't think that we fully understand what Jesus is talking about. Because again, our English language and the translation that we are reading it through garbles it a little bit. Nicodemus certainly misunderstands what Jesus is saying, but I think we misunderstand it as well. You see, in the Greek, the word that is translated again actually has a double meaning. One meaning is again like a second time, and that's the way that Nicodemus interprets Jesus, which is why it leads him to a somewhat comical response that we're going to read in a moment. But there's a second meaning of the word again, and that is 
from above. And this is actually the way that John tends to use that word all throughout his gospel. More often than not, when he uses that Greek word that we have translated again, he actually means from above. In other words, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born from above. You're spiritually reborn. And I and a lot of other uh, interpreters are kind of convinced that's what Jesus is driving at. And, and as we're going to see as we continue through, that's the, the thrust of what he's going for. But Nicodemus, reading this from kind of more of a humanistic standpoint, interprets it in the most base manner, born a second time. And so he responds, understandably, with confusion. Verse 4. <laughs> well, how can someone be born when they're old. Nicodemus said, surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And all the mothers in the room said, amen, amen, right? Like, get away from me, kid. And that's true. And it's comical because the reality is, of course you can't. But that's how he's understanding Jesus and he's totally confused. And so Jesus, knowing he's misunderstood him, tries to address his question, but he comes from a different angle, and quite honestly, it's just as confusing to Nicodemus. Jesus answered, amen, amen, truly, truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God where God's sovereign will is carried out unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So you shouldn't be surprised at me saying you must be born again, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now there's again some wordplay going on when he's talking about the wind and how it moves, but you don't really know where it's coming from. You just see the effects of the wind and you hear it in the trees. Because the Greek word for wind is the same word for spirit. The word is pneuma. And so again, that's Greek wordplay that Jesus is playing with. You, this is, just as it is with the wind, so it is with somebody born of the Spirit. But I want to go back to the beginning of what he said here, because it's probably one of the most important things for us to lean in on this morning. Jesus answered, truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and Spirit. Now, what on earth does Jesus mean? Nicodemus, obviously, is, is confused by it, but I will confess that I, for most of my Christian walk, had been confused by this as well. And probably the reason why I've been confused by it is I tend to read that through an English lens, through the language that I've grown up with, through the language I'm engaging this with, but also because I tend to look at it as a 21st century American human being. And when I look at it that way, I automatically conclude, as many of us probably have, that being born of water means being born of the flesh because water is symbolic of amniotic fluid, and being born of the spirit means being born of the spirit, or as we've heard now, being born again, born from above. And yet, that's a 21st century mindset. That's a 21st century anachronism. When we, it, it, it is a 21st century idiom to talk about birth as my water broke. A first century person would never refer to it. That, they didn't use that kind of language. We do. And so somebody might 
we might interpret Jesus to be saying you have to be born the first time of water and the second time of the Spirit, but Jesus isn't talking about that. It's almost certainly not what he's getting at. But then that raises the question, well, what is he getting at? Other people interpret Jesus to be saying you have to be born of water. In other words, you have to be baptized, and the Spirit has to do his work in order for you to be saved. That would make sense, right? Except that that flies in the face of so many other scriptures that say that we cannot do something to earn our salvation. We can't jump through a hoop in order to be considered saved. It, John, or Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says, it is by faith you have been saved. By, you know, through, it's right, by grace you have been saved, by faith, not by works, so that nobody can boast. So we can't do something to earn our standing with God. And a lot of us unintentionally kind of put baptism in there. And if we read this as Jesus suggesting that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, now all of a sudden we're putting a hoop. And so I would suggest to you that that is not the best reading of this, even though it's the most, one of the most natural readings. So now what could he possibly be driving at? Well, I would suggest a third understanding, and it actually jives much better with the whole flow of John's gospel up to this point. I think he's actually talking about a baptism, but not just any baptism, not just us getting baptized, because we've already been introduced to a baptism in his gospel. And it's a baptism he's going to reference again at the end of this chapter, and that baptism is John's baptism. Remember John the Baptist, the guy who came as a witness to the light but was not the light? John was baptizing in the wilderness. He, he references him in chapter 1 quite a few times. He's going to reference him again at the end of chapter 3. And do you remember what John's baptism was? It was a baptism of repentance. In other words, it was a baptism of people who had lived self-sufficient lives coming to the end of themselves and saying, I can't do it. I have been striving for too long to keep all the rules and climb that ladder to attain righteousness in God's eyes, and I can't do it. It was a broken stairway to heaven. I give up. I turn from my self-sufficiency, and I turn back to God. That's what repentance is. It's a it is a, a military term for if you're marching one way and they say repent, you turn the other way and you walk a different direction. And what John the Baptist was doing is he was inviting people to, to publicly declare that they could no longer live on their own strength, could no longer live for the things that they had been living for, could no longer expend their energy chasing the things that they had been chasing and instead to focus their energy back on pursuing God. And I would suggest that that is what Jesus means when he says you must be born of water and spirit. Not that you have to get baptized, but you need to come to the point where you come to the end of yourself. Because at the end of the day, nobody, nobody can save themselves. Nobody can force themselves back into their mother's womb so they can be reborn. That's just ridiculousness, but that is a, a humanistic way of looking at it. And way too many of us are trying to attain our righteousness through our own efforts. 
And what Jesus is saying is, if you want to experience the kingdom of heaven, you must have the Holy Spirit come and give you new birth, give you a new infilling of life. Just as God blew his breath into the lungs of Adam and so formed humanity out of, you know, broken soil and divine spirit. In the same way, you need a new refilling of the breath, the pneuma of God, so that you can begin to live the life that is truly life. But here's the thing about our God. He created you and he created me to be in relationship with him. He does not force himself upon us. Even if it's what is best for us, he doesn't force his spirit into us. There's a reason why he gave us free will. Because in order to have genuine relationship, you have to have the ability to choose not to be in relationship. I can't say that I have a relationship with my computer or my cell phone or any other electronic device because at the end of the day, all they're doing is performing their programming. But, I can, but, but they do what I want them to do, unless there's an update from Apple, in which case they don't, and then I have to go get a new one, but that's beside the point. My kids, on the other hand, don't always do what I want them to do, right? They have just, there's just as much chance that my kids are going to disregard my love and reject it and think that I'm being mean because I won't let them have ice cream for breakfast. And yet, I can have a relationship with my children because I can also, they, because they have the ability to choose not to be in relationship. And so as much as we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to breathe new life into us and to give us a new lease on life, we have to come to the point of saying, God, I need you. For too long, I've been running at my own pace. I've been trying to do it by my own strength, and I surrender. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. It's not two births that he is talking about when he says you must be born of water and flesh. It's one birth, that birth from above, that spiritual rebirth that begins with us saying, I give up, Jesus, I come to you. I've tried to be the captain of my own ship. It didn't work. I, I throw myself upon your mercy. I choose to follow you because I don't want you just to save me. I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want you to save me from the junk that I've done, but I also want to follow you so that my life can be shaped by your life. My values can begin to be shaped and reflect your values. So I choose to follow you. And when we repent and turn from following ourselves to following him, that's when God fills us with his Holy Spirit, that new breath, and gives us new life. That is what it means to be born from above. And no, the world doesn't understand when we, when we submit to our governing authorities, even though we don't like it. They don't understand it. What are you doing? It's because we're actually submitting to our God, letting him control us and saying, you help yourself to my life because I want to reflect your heart. People don't understand when we find joy and hope in a memorial service when we're saying goodbye to somebody. But we find joy and hope 
because we recognize that death is not the final answer. Death doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. And we have the hope that it's not goodbye. It's simply, I'll see you soon. People don't understand when we turn the other cheek as opposed to fighting back, giving curses for curses, and fighting tooth and nail on social media or at work. They don't understand it because that's not the values of this world. People don't understand why Jesus didn't pick up a sword and fight with Rome. But he wasn't looking to overcome Rome. That wasn't the enemy he came to conquer. He came to conquer sin and death. And he did so by shedding his own blood rather than shedding Roman centurion's blood. So no, it doesn't make sense. Just like we can't understand why the wind blows the way it does, we just see its effects. So are those who are born by the Spirit, who are driven by the Spirit. The world might mock us. The world might not understand us. But only those who have been born again can understand the kingdom of God and can understand the ways of God or can even begin to, to find the values of the king of creation to be palatable. Now, obviously, this was confusing to Nicodemus because he's still thinking along the lines of being born a second time from his mom's womb. So he, he's just kind of like, how can this be? And I, I just see Jesus at this point kind of shaking his head again. Nicodemus is coming as a representative of this group of people who are attracted to Jesus, but they're not sure why. And they're, they're not really sure that they want to be identified with Jesus. They're not really sure they want to come out into the open and say, hey, I'm following him. And so Nicodemus comes at night, and Jesus kind of shakes his head and says, you're Israel's teacher. This is verse 10. You're Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things? Amen, amen. Truly, truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know. And we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I've only spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe those. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Right? I, I'm talking to you about how the wind's blowing and you're confused. I'm talking to you about being spiritually reborn from above. And you're thinking I'm talking about climbing into your mom's womb again. Like, if you don't get this, these basics of the kingdom of God, how on earth can you possibly begin to understand the things I have seen? Verse 13, because no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And, and when he calls himself the Son of Man... We're going to see that Jesus is going to do this a lot through John's gospel. He's going to refer to himself as the Son of Man. He's actually referencing the prophet Daniel from the Old Testament. You see, Jesus knows he's the Messiah. He knows he's God's anointed Redeemer. But that, the, the Jews had been so salivating over the Messiah coming that they had kind of built a very strict interpretation of what the Messiah would look like. And Jesus recognizes the baggage that that term carries, so he, he avoids that for the most part. Instead, he chooses this term, the Son of Man, which is equally prophetic. Because in, in, in Daniel's gospel, he saw one like the Son of Man coming in the throne room of heaven, radiant. And God basically entrusts him the process of redeeming humanity in that vision that Daniel has. Jesus points to that and uses that because it has less baggage with it. But he's referring to himself when he calls himself the Son of Man. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And then he points to a moment in Israel's history from back during the Exodus 
when he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, you don't need to turn here with me, but I'm going to reference, this is what he just talked about, about that snake that comes from Numbers chapter 21. Let's go ahead and throw the verses up here, because as Israel was wandering through the wilderness, it was taking longer to get to the promised land than they would have liked. And so we read that the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. We, we detest the manna we just, in the morning, and we detest the quail at night. We detest having to be dependent upon God for everything. Let's go to the next verse. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes amongst them, and those snakes bit the people, and many Israelites died. And then the people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Please take the snakes away. Now, here's what I love about God. He doesn't take the snakes away. Instead, he provides a way out. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake out of bronze and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now, a couple of things, and it's funny. I was planning to share two. I now have three because I've read this a bunch of times this week. All of a sudden, as I'm reading it this morning, there's a, a third thing that I had not seen prior. The first thing is, and this is the new one for me, the people asked God, take the snakes away. We repent. We're sorry. We grumbled against God. We're sorry. Take the snakes away. God says, no. The snakes, they're going to stick around, but I'm going to provide a different way out. In the same way, we might say, God, take the brokenness of this world away. Take the power struggles away. Take the pain away that people that we love get sick and die, and people that we love buy into beliefs that are, are damaging to them mentally and physically and even relationally. Take that away. And, and God says, no, but I'm going to provide a way out. And then Jesus points to that snake really as a metaphor for what he will be. Because in the same way that that bronze snake was lifted up, that anytime anybody got bitten, anytime they had the venom of one of those poisonous snakes coursing through their veins, they could look to the bronze snake and live. And that bronze snake becomes a metaphor for what Jesus would be for humanity. No, God didn't take the sin of humanity away. He didn't take the brokenness of this world away. He didn't even take free will away. And let's be honest, we're, we're in this mess because God allows us the freedom to choose relationship and not choose relationship. But instead, God sent Jesus and he was raised up on a pole. We call it the cross. That anyone who looks to him even though they have the venom of sin and rebelliousness flowing through their veins, anyone who looks to him in faith won't have to die. We're going to talk more about that next week when we get to perhaps the, the most famous verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16. But you get the heart of it. Jesus is pointing to himself and saying, I am like that serpent. 
But I think there's a third reason why Jesus references the, the snake in the wilderness. And I think that's because of the heart of the people. The Israelites had seen God do some miraculous things. They'd seen God use ten plagues to break the resolve of the most powerful leader in the world at that time and lead them out of slavery. They'd seen God lead them in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. They'd watched as God separated the waters and led them through the Red Sea on dry land and then decimated the most powerful army in the world at that time without them lifting a hand. They'd watched as God caused water to pour out of rocks in the middle of the desert and as he provided manna every single morning except for Sunday and quail every single night. They'd watched all of these things and yet they grumbled because they weren't in control. They grumbled because it was not taking the same amount of time that they thought it should. And in a lot of ways, their heart towards God that led to the snakes, that led to the pole with the snake on it, is a lot like Nicodemus's heart and all of the other Jewish religious leaders who have been waiting for centuries for the Messiah to come. And over the course of those centuries, they'd taken the law that God had given through Moses to help them to begin to recognize what it means to live as ambassadors of their king in this world, and they had codified it into these really sharp and rigid rules that ended up placing the focus upon our efforts and our energy and our human ability and understanding as opposed to putting the emphasis on God's saving power and them just keeping their eyes on him. And I think Jesus pointed to that moment because he recognizes that Nicodemus represents a whole lot of people who place the emphasis on information and knowledge and human effort rather than the power of God. And the reason I think this is so relevant to us today is I see a lot of myself in Nicodemus. In fact, I see a lot of Nicodemus in America as a whole and in American Christians as well. Because I think in a lot of ways, we, like Nicodemus, have been shaped by growing up in America, shaped by the scientific revolution that says we can answer every problem with a scientific solution. We can understand everything about our world, including God. I mean, guys, I went to, I went to, to grad school to get answers to the questions I had in here. I went there to get the tools to be able to explain how God can be one God but in three persons. That's a really difficult thing to wrap your mind around, but I got answers for it. I went to school to answer how, how, how a cross could deal with my sin and how I can explain why there's pain in a world that God created and called good. I went to school to get all of those answers. And I think in a lot of ways, a lot of us, like Nicodemus, tend to place the emphasis on understanding God and understanding what God is doing. How many of us, and you don't have to raise your hand because I think we'd all have our hands up, how many of us 
have been searching for the reasons for why God is allowing COVID to last as long as it has? How many of us have been looking for the reasons why this person died and that person didn't? Looking for the reasons why this person is in office rather than that person? Looking for the reasons for everything that ails us? Trying to understand it. And when we don't have the answers, it's like our faith is shaken because those unanswered questions are like slivers in our minds that impact our ability to trust God. Or maybe that's just me. <laughs> and so I see, my, I see Nicodemus in me and I see Nicodemus in so many other people because for Nicodemus and so many like him, he was curious about Jesus but he came at night because he was afraid to be identified with Jesus because he didn't have his answer, questions answered yet. And I think as Americans, one of the biggest impediments to faith is our intellect and is in the belief that we should have our questions answered. Now, is it wrong to have questions? Absolutely not. Okay, can I say that in church? I just did, so I guess the answer is yes. Um, should I is a different conversation, but we'll have that at another point. Absolutely, we can have questions. Everybody that encountered Jesus had questions. His own disciples had questions. And I, as your pastor, have lots of questions. It's not wrong to have questions. And I thank God that he's a big enough God to handle the full range of our questions and even our emotions and even our anxiety and even our disappointment that things aren't operating the way that we would like them to be. But when we basically come to God and say, until all of my questions are answered, I will not place my faith in you, then that is letting our intellect drive the ship rather than coming to him in faith. And I think that if we were to wait until all of our questions were answered, none of us would come to Jesus. So is it wrong to have questions? No. It's very natural, it's very healthy, and to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we need to allow ourselves the freedom to ask our questions. But placing our faith in Jesus is sometimes taking that step towards him, taking that step into the light even when we still have questions. It's the same kind of leap of faith that I took 16 years ago when I stood at the altar with my now wife and I said, I, Eric, take you, Kathy, to be my wife. I didn't have a stinking clue what that meant. I thought I did. And I spent the last 16 years realizing just how much I had to learn. I thought I was ready to be married. I've spent the last 16 years realizing how much I still had to learn. And then we had our first kid, and I thought I was ready for that. <laughs> Sorry, that probably hurt your ears back home. My bad. But I don't. And that's where faith brings us, is a step towards Jesus, even when we still have questions. It's okay to ask them. But sometimes we have to allow our hearts to lead instead of our minds. And that's not to say we just let emotion control us. But faith is saying, I trust you 
Even though I don't understand it, I trust you and I'm going to choose to follow you. And as I follow you, here's what I've found. I begin to realize just how capable of leading my heart and my life and just how wise Jesus' values are even when I don't understand those values going in. Jesus put it this way a little bit later in this gospel that we're reading. He said, if you're my disciple, if you want to follow me, then you'll do what I say. And if you do what I say, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. In other words, don't wait until you understand it and then take the step. Take the step. Follow me. Put into action the things that you read about me doing. And you'll see the wisdom behind why I'm asking you to do that. Then you'll know the truth. And that truth will set you free. But it begins with faith. We're going to, we're going to go much deeper into that next week when we come to John 3.16, which is the next verse in this. But for now, I'd like to pray for those of us who, like me, want desperately to understand everything and we don't have the answers right now and so our world is spinning and our faith is shaken and I just want to pray for those of us who find ourselves in this position of, of wanting answers and pray that God would give us the courage to take that step in faith and invite the Holy Spirit to do the work that only he can do we pray for us Father God I am so thankful <laughs> that you move towards imperfect people like us. We acknowledge we don't get it. We acknowledge that far too often we are like Nicodemus, trying to understand and hesitant to really let you have the reins of our life until we get why you're asking us to let go of this or to follow you there or to submit to this. But God, we choose to trust you by faith even though we don't fully understand it. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do the life-giving work that only you can do. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would even help us in that process of repentance, of turning from our own self-sufficiency, turning from our own attempts to be in control of our own lives and to just grab hold of you and let you do the work that only you can do. Help yourself to our lives. And in the process, may you reveal the truth behind the questions we don't even know to ask. We thank you, God, that you are gracious. We thank you that you're big enough to handle our questions. And we invite you to help yourself to our lives as we go get to be the church rather than just going to church. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Let's worship together.
myself off. Sorry about that. As we were singing there, I can't help but feel like, uh, well, actually, at around 5.30 this morning when I, I woke up, I began to recognize what we've just been singing. That it's not more information that I want more of. It's more of Jesus. Right? That's what we're after here. We don't come here so you can get interesting information like the, the cross, Jesus on the cross is like you know, the, the bronze snake on the pole. Those, those are all interesting things. But at the end of the day, if all of this is just more information, then I'm actually doing you a disservice. If all you come away here with is a new definition of the word born again as being born from above, then I have done you a disservice. And, and I went into this week writing this message for you, but what I recognized this morning at 5.30 when kind of I began to wake up is, oh, no, 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 this is very much for me as well. Because I don't want to just know more about Jesus. I don't want to just be able to articulate why Scripture is written and what motivated John to write it the way he did. In this season, I need more of Jesus. And that's my prayer for each of us that we would not grab a hold of information. That's what Nicodemus was after. And that won't give us life. Information does not lead to the kind of transformation we're after. Relationship does. And if you are trying to navigate life on your own, then I implore you as somebody who has tasted and seen that Jesus is worth following. Far more trustworthy than my own impulses are worth following. Would you stop running? Would you stop trying to do it on your own? And would you take that first step, even if you don't fully understand? And we want to do that with you. Jeff and I and so many others are here to walk with you. 
All it takes is you just saying, Jesus, I give up. I'm tired of trying to clean myself up on my own. I'm tired of trying to figure it out on my own. Would you come into my life? Would you begin to clean house? We'll talk more about that next week. But if you have questions, please don't hesitate to let us know. You can email pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. You can send us your prayer request to lighthouse. I'm sorry, pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. We will pray with you. If you want to talk, we will have a phone call with you. If you want to grab coffee, we'll go find some place and have a coffee outdoors and we will talk. We would love it. That's what we're here for. That's what we live for. You can also connect with us via our, our app. That's another way you can do it. And in order to get that, it's LCCCM to 77977. And then also giving-wise. You can give online. You can give via your mobile by texting LCCCM to 77977. You can also give in person if that's how you, you want to do it. But we love you. We're so grateful to be on this journey. And I just want us to remember we are not after information. We're after transformation. We're after Jesus. That's what we want more of. More of him. So Jesus, help yourself to our lives. And I pray that you would reveal yourself to us even more this week. As we now go be the church. Because that's the whole point, isn't it? Not just about going to church. It's about going and being the church in the darkness, in this world that has been darkened by sin. We get to go be the light, that ra- that the reflection of the hope that we found in you. May you radiate brightly from each of us, even as we cheer for different teams or just go for the snacks or just go for the, the commercials or the halftime show or whatever it is, or just avoid it altogether. May we represent you. Help yourself to our lives, Jesus, in your name. Have a wonderful week. I would bet.